Welcome to the Fellows Choice Podcast of June 2023. In this podcast, we are happy to summarize the three more impacting articles of ovarian, endometrial and cervical cancer published since January 2023. We are also going to discuss and share our thoughts about the most impacting issues of each article, answering some questions from different fellows. I am Giulio Bonaldo, currently working at the Valle Brown University Hospital in Barcelona. Hello, I'm Nuria Agusti, trained in gynecology oncology at Hospital Clinic de Barcelona and currently taking a postdoctoral fellowship at MD Anderson Cancer Center. We are going to start this interactive articles discussion with Teresa. Hi, Teresa. Hello, everyone. My name is Teresa Pan from the University of Innsbruck in Austria, and I would like to present you a systematic scoping review of clinical studies regarding the use of fluorescence-guided surgery in ovarian cancer. It is known that despite apparent complete surgical macroscopic resection and completion of adjuvant chemotherapy, more than 70% of patients with ovarian cancer ultimately develop recurrence. The presence of residual micrometastatic deposits, which may be chemoresistant, is thought to be a significant contributor to recurrence and survival outcomes. Unfortunately, direct visualizations and palpation of tumor during cytoreductive surgery may miss this micrometastasis and lead to several remission relapse cycles. The authors of this manuscript formulated six questions to guide this review. First, how many clinical reports are there for fluorescence-guided surgery for ovarian cancer? Second, what are the population and disease characteristics of patients included in studies investigating fluorescence-guided surgery for ovarian cancer? Third, which fluorescent materials have been used for fluorescence-guided surgery for ovarian cancer? Fourth, what is the intraoperative role of fluorescence-guided surgery for ovarian cancer? Fifth, what are the surgical, oncologic and survival outcomes of using fluorescence-guided surgery for ovarian cancer? And six, are there any ongoing trials on the use of fluorescence-guided surgery for ovarian cancer? The systematic review included studies from June 2002 until October 2021 from PubMed, Web of Science and Scopus, as well as those from a surge of related literature. And after screening 2,817 potential studies, 24 studies were ultimately included. In these studies, there were 410 cases where fluorescence-guided surgery was performed to visualize tumor deposits. This also may compensate for the lack of tactile feedback in minimal invasive surgery. Another 118 cases were selected where fluorescence-guided surgery was used to identify the sentinel lymph node. Of these, about 70% of cases were FIGO stage 1. In the different studies, five different traces tested and the doses and methods of administrations varied between studies and sometimes even within the same study. None of the studies included assessed survival or oncologic outcomes. The average sensitivity of identifying micrometastasis during cytoreductive surgery ranged between 80-90%, while the specificity between 60-95%. and 95%. The overall reported sentinel lymph node detection rate was about 92%. Furthermore, another potential use for fluorescence-guided surgery is to identify tumor deposits during interval debarking procedure where it is hard to differentiate tumor tissue from scar tissue. 
the utility of Florence's oncologic surgery is not limited to site reduction and excision though. Florence's imaging can be used to evaluate regional blood flow in a technique called near-infrared angiography, which has been shown to be an effective tool to assess anastomotic colorectal perfusion and reduce rectosigmoid anastomic leaks after surgery for ovarian cancer. There are several ongoing trials worldwide regarding the topic of fluorescence-guided surgery in ovarian cancer, and specifically two in the USA, one in France, one in Turkey, one in Spain, one in China, and one in Belgium. Concluding, fluorescence-guided surgery is a promising yet unproven surgical technique to optimize site reduction for ovarian cancer, and especially it can aid in the detection of micrometastatic deposits in advanced stages and identify sentinel lymph nodes in early stages. However, further research is needed to establish whether this will lead to improved patient's outcome. What do you think might be another context where this technique could be useful? Thank you for this intriguing question. In my opinion, another potential setting where the use of fluorescent imaging during surgery for ovarian cancer might impact the outcome is in the evaluation of successful possibility of primary site reduction. So while performing a simple diagnostic laparoscopy in case of uncertain lesions, the fluorescence might indicate me if a R0 resection is feasible or if it is better to undergo neoadjuvant chemotherapy first and reassess later. Furthermore, if you're interested in the topic, I would recommend you to read the paper about the study 006, which is a phase 3 study analyzing the use of OTL38 for folate receptor positive ovarian cancer. There is also an amazing podcast episode of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer with the author Dr. Janus L. Tenney, online dated April 13th. Well, thank you so much, Teresa, for sharing with us your exciting thoughts about what may be the future of ovarian surgery. And we are moving forward, and the next fellow to present us the following article discussion is Giulio Bonaldo from Italy and currently working at Bidebro University Hospital in Barcelona. And he's going to present us the second article choice in the ovarian cancer fight. Please go ahead, Giulio. Content colleagues from the Policlinico Agostino Gemelli in Rome present the article Role of Minimally Invasive Secondary Site Reduction in Patients with Recurrent Ovarian Cancer. This study aimed to identify predictive factors for the feasibility of minimally invasive secondary cytoreductive surgery in patients with recurrent ovarian cancer. A PET-CT scan and diagnostic laparoscopy were performed on each patient before embarking on the secondary cytoreduction. It was a retrospective study. A total of 276 patients, 62 minimally and 214 open, were included and the complete gross resection rate was 95%. A proportion of 1 to 2 propensity score match analysis was performed to balance the predictive factors for minimally invasive secondary cytoreductive surgery. The results showed that new adjuvant chemotherapy at first diagnosis, site of recurrence, and number of lesions were predictive factors for performing minimally invasive secondary cytoreductive surgery. Early postoperative complications were significantly higher in the open group, 33%, compared to the minimally invasive surgery group, 10%. 
The study concluded that patients with single or oligometastatic recurrences can be offered minimally invasive secondary cytoreductive surgery, especially if localized in the lymph nodes and or if they receive new adjuvant chemotherapy at primary diagnosis. What do you think about performing minimally invasive surgery in a recurrent setting? And what do you think are the future perspective of MIS and the surgery of ovarian cancer? Thank you, Teresa, for your question. Well, considering that around 70% of patients with stage 3 and 4 ovarian cancer will recur, the possibility of offering a minimally invasive approach, which may provide a reduction of postoperative complications and a better quality of life for the patients, I think is a very promising topic. Minimally invasive surgery is now common in gynecologic practice, but we need to be cautious regarding its use in this setting, as we have all witnessed what happens after the LAC trial. For this reason, must consider the oncologic outcomes and the need for prospective randomized trials. I look forward to the result of Lance trial. If MIS is non-inferior to laparotomy in terms of disease-free survival in women with advanced stage epithelial ovarian cancer after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, it will be another great achievement for our patients. At the moment, we know that minimally invasive secondary cytoreductive surgery is a reasonable approach in select patients and in select centers. However, when considering oncologic outcomes, the community of gynecologic oncology must know that further research on the role of MIS in ovarian cancer surgery is needed. Thank you, Julio, for giving us this interesting update in the ovarian cancer surgery. And I introduce you the next fellow, Andrea Rosati from Polyclinico Universitario Agostino Gemelli in Rome. He's going to talk about the pattern of recurrence in ovarian cancer. Impact of pattern of recurrence on post-relapse survival according to surgical timing in patients with advanced ovarian cancer. In this retrospective multicenter study, Martina, Ida, Angles and colleagues aimed to evaluate if the timing of cytoreductive surgery was associated with the pattern of first recurrence and explore the impact of recurrence pattern on post-relapse overall survival according to surgical timing. Patient diagnosed with stage 3C to 4 ovarian cancer were undergone either primary debulking surgery, early interval debulking surgery after 3-4 cycles of NACT, or delayed debulking surgery after 6 cycles, with minimal to no residual disease between January 2008 and December 2015 were included in the study. A total of 549 patients were identified, 175 patients had a primary surgery, 224 an early interval and 150 a delayed debulking surgery. Authors found that the cumulative incidence of peritoneal recurrences at two years was significantly higher with increasing the number of neoadjuvant cycles, reaching the peak with delayed debulking surgery, while for plural or pulmonary recurrences, the incidence was higher after early interval debulking surgery. Considering survival outcomes, authors investigated both the impact of surgical timing and the pattern of recurrence. They found a significantly different median post-relapse overall survival between groups and respectively 33.5 months for primary surgery, 27.8 months for early interval and 24.5 months for the delayed debulking surgery group. 
There was also a statistically significant difference in the median post-relapse overall survival among different patterns of recurrence, namely 26.5 months for peritoneal relapse, 68.1 months for lymph node recurrence, 20.5 months for pleural or pulmonary localizations, and 23.2 months for the other recurrences. In the multivariable analysis, variables that remain significantly associated with post-relapse overall survival were the lymph node pattern of recurrence with a nasal ratio of 0.42, the delayed surgical timing with a nasal ratio of 1.53, and time to recurrence with a nasal ratio of 0.95. In conclusion, the pattern of first recurrence was associated with the timing of surgery, with peritoneal recurrences being more frequent while increasing the number of cycles of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Lymph node recurrences were associated with better prognosis demonstrating higher post-relapse overall survival, and this improved outcome of lymphatic recurrences was more evident after primary and early interval debarking surgery. Finally, shorter time to first relapse and delayed debulking surgery were both significantly associated with decreased overall survival. Thank you, Andrea. While listening your summary, I was wondering what are the possible strategies to improve both the poor response to chemotherapy and the poor prognosis of delayed interval debulking surgery? Is it possible to further stratify the prognosis of patients within different recurrence patterns? Thank you so much for your question. This paper offers an interesting point for reflection, highlighting a problem that we address in our daily clinical practice. Indeed, patients undergoing delayed interval debulking surgery, considering their higher tumor burden and higher comorbidities, represents a therapeutic challenge and a subgroup with an intrinsically worse oncological outcome. Although the setting of delayed debulking surgery is prognostically unfavorable, the time gained during neoadjuvant chemotherapy allows us to acquire important information about the clinical and biological aggressiveness of the tumor. During neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we must collect some crucial information about platinum sensitivity, evaluating it through RESIS criteria through the clinical response to the drop of CA125 according to GCAG criteria. We can calculate the Kalim score and it is possible to both clarify the HRD status, the BRCA status, and to explore other molecular markers of resistance to platinum or PARP inhibitors such as the amplification of cyclin A1. Based on all these informations, we can shape the best neoadjuvant management and, for example, decide whether to add bevacizumab, especially in the Kelim unfavorable group, in order to both potentially maximize the chance of delayed complicate reduction and survival outcomes. Furthermore, based on molecular profile in the near future, we will be eventually able to propose PARB inhibitor in neoadjuvant setting. Obviously, we have to wait for the results from the Nuvola trial and NOW trial that will clarify the specific point. In this context, it will be essential also to identify biomarkers of chemoresistance or resistance to maintenance therapy in order to potentially design a combination therapy able to overcome resistance even in the adjuvant setting. 
Moreover, we have to consider two important aspects of delayed debulking surgery. First of all, that the rate of peritoneal recurrence in this subgroup of patients is higher. And secondly, that it is hypothesized that chemoresistant clonal cells can be selected under the selective pressure of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Considering this, hyperthermic intraperitoneal chemotherapy can potentially play an important role, especially in this subset of patients, that is worth to be explored deeper in the future. Finally, it is interesting and intuitive to observe how different recurrence patterns correlate with different prognoses, being the lymph nodal the most favorable when compared to the others. In this context, I think it would be interesting to further stratify oncological outcomes of different recurrent patterns, so peritoneal, lymph nodal, or other metastatic sites, thanks to their molecular characteristics, such as BRCA mutational status, in order to better tailor both the therapeutical management and counseling with our patient. Thank you very much, Andrea, for this very interesting summary. And now, Jen Davis Oliveira from the University of Manchester, UK, is going to talk about the replacement therapy among cervical cancer patients. In the January edition of the journal, Suzuki and colleagues presented their study investigating the prescription of hormone replacement therapy among cervical cancer patients with treatment-induced premature menopause. They utilized the market scan databases in the USA to identify all cervical cancer patients under 50 who underwent premature menopause secondary to surgery or radiotherapy examining the cumulative utilization of HRT up to 24 months after the loss of ovarian function. Of the 1,836 patients identified as having a cervical cancer diagnosis, 39% of patients were found to have received HRT within 24 months of primary treatment. 49.4% in the surgical group received HRT, whilst only 36.6% in the radiotherapy group. The mean duration of prescription was only 60 days, with 90 days for the surgery group and 35 days for the radiotherapy group. They found that factors associated with lower likelihood use was radiotherapy, older age, residency in the northeast of the USA, and black race. They concluded that HRT is underutilized among premenopausal cervical cancer patients despite clinical guidance supporting its short and long-term health benefits as well as safety. Thank you, John, for that wonderful summary. Now, quality of life care is becoming increasingly more important. Do you have a protocol in your hospital for considering hormone replacement therapy at the follow-up? UK guidelines, as well as international ones, such as the recently published ESGO Estro ESP guidelines for the management of patients with cervical cancer in the May issue, recommend the use of HRT in cervical cancer patients who undergo a premature menopause to reduce the risk of long-term health sequelae, such as cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, and neurological and cognitive disorders. The abrupt deprivation of hormones caused by treatment tends to cause worse vasomotor symptoms, mood and sleep disorders, and vulvovaginal symptoms. Cervical cancer patients also experience sexual dysfunction, which could be mitigated with the use of systemic and local HRT. 
Hormone replacement, however, tends to take secondary importance in consultations, with the treatment for the cancer taking precedence. There is widespread fear perpetuated by the media around HRT use and other malignancies such as breast cancer, which likely con contributes to poor compliance and use. To mitigate this, clear information is needed to reassure healthcare professionals and patients regarding the safety and importance of HRT use in premenopausal women who undergo premature menopause secondary to treatment, and it's of importance in improving general health, reducing future morbidity and mortality, and fundamentally improving quality of life for our patients. Thank you so much, Jane. It was a wonderful update. We are now moving forward with Vansa from Georgia, who is going to talk about the role of the simple hysterectomy in early stage cervical cancer. Hello to my co-fellows and listeners of this podcast. I'm Gwanta Kochiashvili from Caucasus Medical Center in Tbilisi, Georgia. I chose to present the LESSER study, which is a proof-of-concept randomized phase 2 non-inferiority trial of simple versus type B2 hysterectomy in early-stage cervical cancer less than 2 cm in size by Vandre Cabral Gomez Carneiro and friends. 40 patients from three oncological centers in northeast Brazil were included. Inclusion criteria were histologically confirmed adenocarcinoma, squamous or adenosquamous cancer of the cervix by loop electrosurgical excision, cone or cervical biopsy, age between 18 and 70 years, performance status 0, 1 or 2, FIGO 2009 early stage 1A2 to 1B1 and tumors up to 2 cm in size appropriate cardiorespiratory, hepatorenal and hematological reserves, and signing of the consent form. Additional requirements for inclusion were absence of limiting systemic comorbidities, including neuropsychiatric disorders or obesity, apparent or confirmed uncontrolled infections, synchronous malignancies, previous radiation or chemotherapy treatment or major pelvic surgery, history of drug allergies and pregnancy or breastfeeding. The only exclusion criterion was evidence of advanced disease at the time of surgery. Whereas tumor characteristics such as the presence of lymphovascular space invasion, histological grade 3 and depths of invasion evaluated after colonization were not considered exclusion criteria. Patients were randomly assigned to simple or modified radical hysterectomy both in association with pelvic lymph node dissection. Primary endpoint was 3-year disease-free survival and secondary endpoints were overall survival, operative outcomes, adjuvant therapy and patients' health-related quality of life. All patients underwent pelvic lymph node dissection without sentinel lymph node biopsy in association with simple or modified radical hysterectomy according to the randomization arm. Tumor size estimation was based on the pelvic clinical examination without mandatory magnetic resonance imaging. As required, adjuvant therapy included chemoradiation or pelvic radiation alone. 
The follow-up scheduling for patients monitoring included post-operative review two and four weeks after surgery, followed by clinical pelvic or general examination every three months for two years, every six months for the next three years, then annually. Imaging examinations were also performed every six to 12 months or when clinically required for at least three years and annually thereafter. With a median follow-up of 52.1 months, the primary endpoint of three-year disease-free survival was 95% after simple hysterectomy and 100% after modified radical hysterectomy. The corresponding five-year overall survival rates were 90% for the simple hysterectomy group and 91% for the modified radical hysterectomy arm. Adjuvant therapy rate was 30% in simple hysterectomy group and 20% in radical hysterectomy group. This study found that simple hysterectomy was safe and potentially non-inferior to radical surgery in terms of disease-free survival with similar 5-year overall survival rates and no major differences in terms of patients' health-related quality of life. They also found some perioperative outcomes favoring simple hysterectomy, such as shorter operative time and shorter time for urinary catheter removal, with no single major surgical morbidity associated with this non-radical approach. Hi Kvanta, so now that the SHAPE trial have been announced, CONSERVE trial published in 2021 and awaiting for GOG 278, what is the important and highlights of this particular study, the LASER trial, and how is it different from GOG 278, CONSERVE and SHAPE? Thank you. Thank you for this tough question. I'm really looking forward to the SHAPE trial paper, but from what has already been announced, it, it is always a great news to have more proof of the possibility of less radical treatment without compromising long-term oncological outcomes. CONSERVE is another landmark study with very specific inclusion criteria. As we all know, the majority of cases of cervical cancer occur in low- and middle-income countries. Given that I represent one such country, I hold a particular appreciation for the lesser study. Due to its alignment with the real-life resources, settings and population commonly found in uh, low- and middle-income countries. I highly recommend listening to the podcast about the lesser study where doctors Bandre Carneiro and Glauco Baiocchi have a great discussion with our editor-in-chief, Professor Pedro Ramirez. Also, I cannot help but note that none of these studies is about minimally invasive surgery versus open, so conclusions about that should not be drawn from them. We should wait for the results of other studies specifically designed for answering this question. Thank you, Dvansa. So we will have to wait for the upcoming data to know more about the safety of performing a simple hysterectomy. Next fellow is Nuri Agusti from MD Anderson in Houston, and she's going through the hottest updates in the new published European Cervical Guidelines. In 2018, the European Society of Gynecological Oncology, ESGO, jointly with the European Society for Radiotherapy and Oncology, ESTRO, and the European Society of Pathology, ESP, 
published evidence-based guidelines for the management of patients with cervical cancer. Dr. Cibula and a multidisciplinary international development group, given that new and exciting data continue to emerge in the management of patients with cervical cancer, the three sister societies decided to update these evidence-based guidelines. These update guidelines are comprehensive and cover staging, management, follow-up, long-term survivorship, quality of life, and palliative care. To highlight, in the setting of early-stage disease, patients with FIGO stage 1A2 disease who are not interested in fertility preservation are candidates for a simple rather than the traditional radical hysterectomy, being consistent with the results of the CONSERVE trial. Additionally, for FIGO stage 1B1 to 2A1, the surgical standard of care is now the open radical hysterectomy, although minimally invasive approach is also considered in tumors less than 2 cm and free margins after conization. Also, when an adequate type of radical hysterectomy has been performed in intermediate risk group patients, guidelines consider observation an alternative option, especially in teams experienced in this approach. It also remains the recommendation of performing the lymph node intraoperative assessment as the first step of surgical management and performing a systematic pelvic lymphadenectomy as the standard lymph node staging if sentinel lymph nodes are negative on frozen section. Moreover, parotid lymph node dissection, at least up to inferior mesenteric artery, is still considered to be performed in locally advanced cervical cancer with negative parotid lymph nodes on imaging for staging purpose. Amazing, Nuria. Thank you very much. So, what do you think are the highlights of this guide that may cause controversy? Yeah, well, this is actually a good question. There are some recommendations that could be seen as contentious or even controversial. I would highlight three of them. One important issue that has right controversy is early stage management since guidelines still leaves room for the minimal invasive approach in cases considered as low-risk tumors, thus tumors less than 2 cm and free margins after organization. However, this should be interpreted with caution, such as recommendation is not based on properly conducted prospective evaluation, and I think that patients should be informed of this fact. Additionally, minimal invasive surgery is also considered an acceptable approach for lymph node staging as the first step of surgical management. Of note, there is no clear recommendation as to the surgical approach, open versus minimal invasive, when performing radical tracheotomy. A second controversial point to discuss is that it is recommended the intraoperative assessment of lymph node status, evaluated by frozen section, as the first step of surgery. And if sentinel lymph nodes are negative from frozen section, a systematic pelvic lymphadenectomy should be performed as the standard lymph node staging. So, if performing frozen section and considering that this is a reliable technique, one would wonder as to the rationale for a lymphadenectomy after negative frozen section, particularly given the low likelihood of positive non-sentinel lymph nodes in the setting of a negative sentinel lymph node. However, this recommendation in these guidelines is justified due to the lack of prospective data. There are retrospective data showing the good sensitivity of the sentinel lymph nodes, but there are no real prospective data. So there are ongoing trials such as Centix and Centicol, and these trials should bring us a good grade of evidence. 
And finally, I also think that one controverted recommendation has been that parathic limb node dissection may be also considered in patients with local advanced cervical cancer. And this recommendation is given despite the results of the uterus 11 trial showing no difference in disease-free survival between surgical and clinical staging. However, uterus 11 did not use PET scan in the preoperative imaging and it is considered the standard in developed countries. So, it is known that PET scan false negative results in the parotid area have been recorded in 20 to 30% of patients with pelvic lymph nodes uptake. For this reason, ESGO guidelines consider parotid lymph node dissection as an option for staging purposes in, pace, in patients with positive pelvic nodes and negative parotid lymph nodes on pretreatment PET scan in order to avoid prophylactic extended fire chemoradiation in approximately 75% of patients with positive pelvic lymph nodes. So as a consequence, ESGO guidelines are awaiting the results of the Parala trial that addresses this question in this specific subgroup of patients. Thank you, Nuria, for this exciting summary of the most relevant updates in the new European Cervical Cancer Guidelines. It has been very interesting. Thank you to you, Julia. So now we are changing the topic and we are moving to the most impacting articles in the endometrial cancer field. It's the time of Arthur Su, Administrative Fellow of the International Journal from Taiwan, and he's going to talk about other guidelines, in this case the European Fertility Sparing New Guidelines. Brother Lacaster L from the Alexandra Hospital at Athens presented an article titled ESGO ESRI ESGE Guidelines for the Fertility Sparing Treatment of Patients with Endometrial Carcinoma. A collaboration was set up between the societies aiming to develop clinically relevant and evidence-based guidelines focusing on key aspects of fertility sparing treatment, including patient selection, tumor clinical pathological characteristics, treatment, and special issues in order to improve the quality of care for women with endometrial carcinoma. An international multidisciplinary development group who have demonstrated leadership and expertise in endometrial carcinoma, including 11 experts from across Europe, were nominated. To ensure that the guidelines are evidence-based, the literature published since 2016 was reviewed and critically appraised. The guidelines were then reviewed by 95 independent international practitioners in cancer care delivery and patient representatives. And what are your thoughts on this new guideline? Can you give us your opinion on what you want to emphasize from the new guidelines? I'd like to touch base on the patient selections, especially on molecular classification. The molecular classification is impacting the treatment principles in nearly all scenarios of endometrial cancer, including fertility sparing. The guidelines suggest that resistance to conservative treatment and recurrences are more common in MMRD patients in cited three articles. One is by Antonio Raffon from ERTTS Azienda Ospedaliardo Universitaria di Bologna. A multicenter Italian study published in 2021 consisting of 69 patients, including 47 atypical endometrial hyperplasia and 22 endometrial cancer, undergoing fertility sparing treatment with MMRD observed in 9% of the cases. Recurrence was significantly more common in MMRD than in MMRP cases. May Zekauer from UCLA 
also published their retrospective case series of 84 patients. 7% of cases were MMRD. None of the patients with MMRD had resolution of hyperplasia or malignancy, in contrast to 53% with MMRP. Yongxing Chong from Yonsei University in Korea in 2021 published their 57 patients. 15.8% had MMRD. Patients with MMRD were significantly worse than MMRP in terms of best overall response and complete response rate at six months. Thus, testing for MMRD is important even in fertility sparing planning in endometrial cancer. Given that with a patient with young age with MMRD, the chances for a response are lower and they also pose a risk for Lynch syndrome, which warrants investigation of other types of cancer. Amazing job, Arthur. Thank you very much. And now, Ryan Kahn from Memorial Sloan Kettering, New York, is going to talk about the biomarker-driven therapy in endometrial cancer. It is a very exciting time in the treatment of endometrial cancers. Targeted or biomarker-driven therapies are expanding at a historic rate. From this review, Biomarker-Driven Therapy in Endometrial Cancer by Dr. Karpel, Dr. Solnovitz, Dr. Coleman, and Dr. Pathuri, published March 2023, this article reviews treatments and targets of interest in endometrial cancer by molecular subtype. The Cancer Genome Atlas classifies four main molecular subtypes, which are validated and highly prognostic. Treatment consideration by subtypes is now recommended. In March and April 2022, respectively, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration fully approved and the European Medicines Agency adopted a positive opinion recommending the anti-program cell death protein, or PD-1, antibody, pembrolizumab for advanced recurrent DMMR or MSI high endometrial cancer, which is progressed on or following a platinum-containing therapy. A second anti-PD-1, distarlamab, received accelerated approval by the FDA and conditional marketing authorization by the European Medicines Agency in this group. The combination of pembrolizumab and lumbatinib for mismatropera proficient microsatellite-stable endometrial cancer, including P53 aberrant copy number high and NSMP or copy number low received accelerated FDA approval. Trastuzumab is National Comprehensive Cancer Network or NCCN compendium listed for human epidermal growth factor receptor 2 or HER2 positive serous endometrial cancer, which is primarily within the P53 aberrant or copy number high subtype. In addition to hormonal therapy, maintenance therapy with Selinexor or Exportin 1 inhibitor showed potential benefit in P53 wild type cases in a subset analysis and is being investigated prospectively. Other treatments being evaluated in NSMP or copy number low are hormonal combinations with cyclin-dependent kinase 4-6 inhibitors and letrozole. Ongoing trials are evaluating immunotherapy in combination with frontline chemotherapy and other targeted agents. Additionally, treatment de-escalation is being evaluated in pole-E mutant cases given its favorable prognosis with or without adjuvant therapy. Overall, this is a very promising time with incredible advances for our patients. 
Since the publication of this article, what are other advancements on the round of endometrial cancer? Exciting time in the treatment of endometrial cancers. Targeted or biomarker-driven therapies are expanding at a historic rate. Three major impactful studies have emerged in the previous months, two of which, GY018 and Ruby, have changed the standard of care in the management of endometrial cancers for particular patient populations, and one, the status trial on the precipice for uterine carcinosarcomas. Let's start with GY018. This was presented at the 2023 SGO conference and published in the New England Journal of Medicine shortly following. This trial found in patients with advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer the, additional, the addition of pembrolizumab to standard chemotherapy, carboplatin and paclitaxel, resulted in significantly longer progression-free survival than with chemotherapy alone. This was a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized phase 3 trial, assigning 816 patients with measurable disease, which was stage 3 or 4A, or stage 4B, or recurrent endometrial cancer in a 1-to-1 ratio, to receive pembrolizumab or placebo, along with combination therapy with paclitaxel plus carboplatin. The administration of pembrolizumab or placebo was planned in six cycles every three weeks, followed by up to 14 maintenance cycles every six weeks. Additionally, this study stratified by two cohorts depending on MMR status. In the 12-month analysis, Kaplan-Meier estimates of progression-free survival in the deficient MMR cohort were 74% in the pembro group and 38% in the placebo group, with a hazard ratio for progression or death at 0.30 a 70% difference in the relative risk. In the MMR proficient cohort, median progression-free survival was 13.1 months with PEMBRO and 8.7 months with placebo. That now brings us to the RUBY trial, another landmark trial presented at the 2023 SGO conference and published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This study found the Starlimab, a checkpoint inhibitor, plus carboplatin paclitaxel significantly increased progression-free survival among patients with primary advanced or recurrent endometrial cancers, with a substantial benefit in the MMR-deficient MSI-high population as compared to standard chemotherapy alone. Inclusion criteria included primary advanced stage 3A, 3B, or 3C1 disease that could be evaluated or measured with the use of rhesus, as well as primary advanced stage 3 one 3C1 disease with carcinosarcoma, clear cell serous, or mixed histology uh, characteristics. Regardless of the presence of disease that could be evaluated or measured, primary advanced stage 3C2 or stage 4 disease, regardless of the presence of disease that could be evaluated or measured, were also included. Additionally, disease that was in its first recurrence and had not been treated with systemic therapy or had been treated with neoadjuvant or adjuvant systemic therapy and had recurred or progressed in at least six months after completion of uh, treatment in its first recurrence. This was the inclusion criteria. So with the results, among 494 patients in the overall population, progression-free survival at 24 months was 36.1% in the distarlimab group and 18.1% in the placebo group. Overall survival at 24 months was 713 with the distarlimab group and 56.0% with placebo. Last, this now brings us to the status trial. The st status trial published in JCO this month in May investigated the efficacy and safety of trastuzumab deruxacan, an antibody drug conjugate targeting human epidermal growth factor receptor 2, or HER2, with a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor payload in patients with uterine carcinosarcomas expressing HER2. Among 84 patients included for analysis between 2017 to 2020, 
The objective response rate in the HER2 high and HER2 low groups were 54.5% and 70.0%, which is quite remarkable. Those by investigator assessments were 68.2% and 60.0% respectively. The median PFS and OS in the HER2 high and HER2 low groups were 6.2 and 13.3 months, as well as 6.7 months and not reached respectively. Overall, all three of these trials mentioned are an incredible advances for our patients. Thank you so much, Ryan. And finally, the last fellow to join us is Anissa from Kenya, and she's going to talk about an interesting topic as it is the BMI and the effect on endometrial cancer recurrence. Hello, my name is Anissa Mburu. I'm a GYN oncologist in Agopan Hospital, Kenya. I'm going to talk about a paper by Laskov and colleagues from Tel Aviv, Israel, who looked at the effect of BMI change on recurrence risk in patients with endometrial cancer. They selected 211 patients with endometrial cancer and followed them up for a median of 53.4 months. The mean BMI was 30.4 kilograms per meter squared at surgery, compared to 30.9 kilograms per meter squared at the last follow-up. The BMI increase was most pronounced in patients with endometrial histology that recurred. 31.6 kilograms per meter squared at surgery compared with 33.5 kilograms per meter squared at the last follow-up. The mean increase in BMI was 1.9 for the endometrial histology group of patients that recurred compared with a mean of 0.5 BMI increase in the endometrial histology group of patients that did not recur. On multivariate analysis, Age and BMI change were the only predictors that were significantly associated with the risk of recurrence. They therefore concluded that patients with endometrial endometrial cancer that had an increase in BMI during follow-up were at an increased risk for cancer recurrence compared with patients that did not change or had a decrease in BMI. Thank you, Anissa. So I was wondering at what point should we initiate the discussion on the importance of weight loss in endometrial cancer patients? And how often should we bring it up? Thank you for that question. It is necessary to initiate the conversation about the importance of weight loss from the time a diagnosis of endometrial cancer is made. The patient should be made aware of the risk factors they have that may have led to endometrial cancer so that they can implement modifiable life changes such as regular exercise and weight loss. Throughout the treatment, it should be discussed at each follow-up visit as part of survivorship care. It is the healthcare provider's mandate to provide active interventions for weight loss by referrals to dietitians, physiotherapists, endocrinologists, and even bariatric surgeons in order to improve the quality of life and overall health for women with endometrial cancer, as well as to improve their oncological outcome. Thank you, Anissa. With your thoughts, we came to the end of this podcast. Thank you for being with us. We've had a wonderful time together discussing with you all the most relevant papers of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer for the last six months. We hope to see you soon in the next podcast. Bye-bye.